if you fundamentally were in this business only try to have an outcome mm -hmm. 12 to 18 to 24 months later, you're in the wrong, you're, in, you're not going to last. You have to recognize that there's value in people being raped or murdered and not having them be completely forgotten. Are they going to get away with it? Yeah, do the numbers. We're all for accountability. I'm for accountability. But if you're a Seleka or anti-Balaka leader in the Central African Republic, you're, you're on solid ground. You're probably going to get whacked by, you know, in battle or by one of your own men before you're actually <laughs> held accountable. That's Lewis Mudge talking about the realities of human rights work in some very tough places. He's been active in Central Africa on this for about a decade, often in the remote bush where pretty much no one else goes. So I thought that this was a perspective that would be really interesting to unpack. What does responsible human rights work look like amidst some of the worst violence anywhere in the world? How do you stay motivated and empathetic when all of the big picture trends are pretty much negative over that entire time period? What is the personal and career story for this sort of thing? Where do you go after a decade of working on the very worst human rights violations? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy this one. Lewis is someone who's always walked the talk from the earliest days I've met him, and he doesn't hold back on what that looks like and what it's meant for him personally over a tough decade or so in the in the region. I ask this to everybody, but I know the answer in your case. D Tell define me. your accent. Where is your accent from? Uh, my accent is uh, probably, I would say, a New England accent. Yeah. Uh, I'm from just outside of Boston, but I have been abroad for so many years now that a lot of people think I have a British-sounding accent, which I've no, always... I, yeah, I, really know, don't. I, think, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. So I've, I've been told my accent is slightly British-inflected yeah. and... Um, yeah, people have had a hard time. Canadian, maybe people have had a hard time placing it. But but my accent is Southern New England, sort of Bo Greater Boston area. I'd say it is remarkable, given how long you have not been living <laughs> in New England, that you still have a New England accent. Well, right? yeah, I, but but you should talk to my you work in French you much should, of the time. Yeah, I work in French, <laughs> but you should talk to my brother because yeah. my brother has a, or my father. I mean, they have proper. <laughs> They have proper New England accents, and whenever I go home, I'm still slightly uh, taken aback at uh, yeah. how much they sound like they're out of central casting for like Goodwill Hunting or The Departed or something. <laughs> I guess this may be easier in your case. If you meet someone at the the pub yeah. at a bar, yeah. how do you describe what you do for living? It's interesting because what I, I'm not entirely. Uh, it depends on it depends on it depends on how long I'm going to be chatting with the person. Yes, but I'm not entirely truthful. So what I say, long story short, is I investigate war crimes. Yeah, let's. So so long story long. Though. So long story long, but that's only if I'm like, yeah. you know. So then I say I work for Human Rights Watch, mm -hmm. and then you'd be surprised. A lot of people do know Human Rights Watch, yeah. but more I would say more often than not, more people don't. And then you say, it's like Amnesty International. 
that's true. You die a little and inside then, when he yeah, said yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and then they say, oh, yeah, we've heard of that. And you, then they you say, say a bit better, right? Yeah, uh, sometimes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'll often say it's like Amnesty. I mean, a lot of people have heard of, of Human Rights Watch, and it's pretty interesting because in the last eight years that I've been there, uh, I think in name recognition, it has actually increased. Yeah. I, I've known for HRW for a long time, but yeah. I follow, I tend to follow those issues. That's why I work there. So for, for, yeah, for the longer answer, I say it's like amnesty and then they get it. And then I say I work in, um, I mean, I say I work in Central Africa, mm-hmm. on Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I've said Rwanda, everyone associates that with the genocide. Uh, so you kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 24 it's, years it's on. 20, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, 24 years on. So you have to sort of caveat it and say, well, I'm not, and they think I'm working yeah. on issues around the genocide. So you say, no, I'm actually not. I'm working on much more quote unquote boring issues like political space, civil society, media, right. freedom of expression, freedom of association. Uh, then I'll say, uh, Congo, which everyone is like super, wow, you know, that's like super exotic. So that in of itself is a conversation, but I haven't actually worked on Congo. I have for HRW, but I haven't been there. I've been based there for years. So then I say Central African Republic, which people think it's is a black. region, region, <laughs> not, a, not a place. And then you say Burundi, and it's like, blank. they know it's a place. Yeah. They've heard of it, but it's a proper blank. Yeah. Um, C-A-R is just a region. So you say that, and they say, what what country is that? I mean, that, is a, that is a country. You say it is a country. Um, and then Burundi, and it's a proper blank. I mean, really, people really don't really? know it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but francophones do. Of course. Francophones will. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on who you're chatting with. But at a typical bar pub conversation, most folks won't know the places or won't know the context. So it leads to, if they're up for it, it can lead to an interesting conversation. When we met in Congo, which is now... Like, I don't 2011? When, when were you there? I got there in 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we met in 08, probably. Yeah. So... Yeah. There you go. A solid decade ago. Yeah. yeah At yeah, the time, yeah. you were, it was a it was Community Radio for Justice. Is yes, that what it was called? Yes. It was called it's quite Inter- Interactive Radio for Justice. Yes. Well, I mean, it's interesting because, frankly, what I do now is very – obviously, it's different. But in yeah. some ways, it's really similar. Yeah. I had, a, I had the, one of the coolest jobs in the world. My job was to manage com- community radio journalists and technicians. Right. Right. So we had teams in, uh, I had a, a base team in Bongi, Bongi. Mm-hmm. I had a base team in Bunia, mm-hmm. and I had a base team in Goma. And then we had satellite teams with, that were connected to other local radio stations. So, um, you know, in Bongi, I had a team in, in Berberati, I had a team in Kagabandoro, I had a team in Boar, I had a team all over the country. Mm-hmm. And our job was super easy and super interesting. Our job was to talk about to get these journalists to engage the community, and it's always nice when this stuff is funded. I mean, if we've been looking for sponsors, I think we would have been in trouble. But it was already funded to engage the community on justice issues. Mm-hmm. So what does justice mean to you? Um, and it was super cool because we kind of we chose uh, Central African Republic and those two parts in the Congo because that's where the ICC at the time the Bemba trial was, you know, yep. hadn't started, but the investigations were going. Goma for. Um, uh, for Intaganda and then Bunia, because obviously all the stuff around the Turi. Mm-hmm. So we thought most of the conversations were going to be around ICC, yeah. and they weren't. Most of them were around local issues, and it was super interesting. I mean, I remember the number one issue we got in the DRC, 
no matter where it was, this came up every year. We would get multiple questions and multiple engagements and multiple conversations with local authorities was around this issue of the flag. Do you remember this when we were living there? If the raising or lowering the flag, you have to stop. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I got caught out by this yeah, exactly, several times myself. Exactly. So if you and I get caught out, we pay a few hundred francs and it's no big deal. But, yeah. you know, but they would use that as a pretext of course, to, yeah. not, to hit people up for money, the yeah. police. And that as an issue, and I, you know, I'll, I'll always remember that. I mean, every year we would do programs on this issue of what the law says, what the police say. Legally, mm. if you can't see it, then obviously you can't be held accountable, right? You fix that, yes. In Congo, it's not the same. Huh? I mean, the mm. police literally would be waiting around a corner and would nail some person and say, no, like you're in big trouble. And they'd be like, I can't even see it. And they wouldn't see it. And second of all, you're not, there is a fine associated with it, but you weren't supposed to, I mean, you're obviously not supposed to pay it on the spot. Yes. And there, you know, every authority we spoke to was always saying, look, there has to be some leeway. Um, so it was just a, it was just a, a a racket, you know, a way of getting money. But I think the people we chatted with were, were mostly deeply offended that it was, they were using the national flag. As that means, mm. okay, you're driving your car. I don't know, you know, other ways you're on your chukudu and you take a wrong turn. I, I don't know. They, the other ways they weren't as offended, but the flag issue year in, year out, uh, came up. Obviously not in CAR because they don't have that ridiculous rule, but I'll never, you know, I'll never forget. I feel like we made the most impact on, <laughs> on local authorities stopping it because in some of the communities, I mean, I don't think we had as much of an impact in Goma, for example, yeah. but they do this all the way out into, in the sort of yeah. rural areas, yeah, Lucero, Ruchiro, you know, all these places they were pulling the stunt and we did have an impact in sort of diminishing that. And I think it made a difference in people's lives. It was super interesting. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that would be the main issue that we it was not what was, when, in, was in the program documents. When, when yes. No, I don't think the MacArthur Foundation was <laughs> too impressed when I was like, look, this is where we're making traction. Like, bear with me. This yes. Is, yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is important. No, but it was, uh, no, it was a good gig. It was super interesting. I learned a lot about the region. It was a great opportunity. I traveled a ton. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great way to learn about CAR, a great way to learn about parts of Congo. Mm. Um, I got uh, journalists from both CAR and Congo up here to The Hague mm. to cover the trials, to mm. to to interview Ocampo. Mm. Um, so that was great. Interview the defense teams. Mm. Uh, super interesting. So, it was, yeah, it was good. It was a mm. uh, good, good opportunity for a guy to get deep into some of those issues around justice. My memory from that time, and this is now a decade ago, was basically that you would ride in and out of town on motorbikes, on motorbikes. Yeah. <laughs> from some place that I was technically not allowed to go, or if I was, only in like a military convoy. Yeah, we had a lean budget, and I, <laughs> they were like clearly looking for someone who didn't give a, uh, didn't give a rat's ass about <laughs> going to sort of areas that were perceived as dangerous. Yeah, we used yeah. to go to Walikali. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I had a little TBS, one of those little 125cc mm. bikes. I don't know if you remember, it got stolen by the police. I, no, I, I remember. You were quite, you were quite, quite, quite pissed off. You were a little bit angry, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was, um, it was, uh, very low pay. Yes. Um, and, um, we didn't have any protocol for security. Yeah. Um, I remember, I remember the conversation with the person who was then the manager about me wanting to have a Thoraya. And yeah. she said, 
what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> what's the point? Literally, that was what, that was her response. Like, what would you think I could do? Like, she was in, I don't know where she was, but she was based in Paris. And she was like, you know, there's nothing I could do. So there's literally no point. You'll well, just that's, have that's to reassuring, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, actually, you know, it was kind of like yeah, keeping it real. Based your uh, own yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, no. And, um, yeah, I mean, we worked in, we had no, system in which we tried to gather information first. It was all the journalists on the ground who dictated whether it was secure or not. And it was literally them just saying, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's good. It was really fun. I mean, we worked in LRA affected areas of car as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was, um, it was for me, it was, it was what led me here. I mean, it's what definitely got me into HRW because, um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't speak very good French mm. when I showed up and, um, Basically, I could manage a budget mm-hmm. and I could manage a team mm-hmm. and I was, I was totally not okay with, but I was like gunning to go to those areas. Yeah. And so that's how I got the job. You described it as the best job you ever had in, in a sense. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. 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 It was great. So you went from there to, is that to, you know, that's much? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Right? yeah. Also, also yeah. DRC. Um, no, so regional, yeah, regional, uh, based out of Kigali. What was the rationale for that then? Um, yeah, I mean, through, you know, I'd always heard of HRW and Amnesty, but it was really through the work I was doing in the Congo. Mm -hmm. I would speak to Ida, but more often it was Annika, Annika van Wittenberg, who was Mm -hmm. the DRC sort of senior researcher at the time, um, who since left HRW and she's now uh, running an organization in London. But... I spoke with her often uh, as a sort of person on the radio. So mm-hmm. like my journalists and I, we would call her or we would find her in Goma and I'd have the Lubero guys get on a plane and we do a bunch of different things and we'd interview her. That was one of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the years, I just got to know the HRW folks well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I really wanted to work at the organization. The job was posted and I applied and uh, yeah, got lucky and got it. Mm. So I went to Kigali for a few years, which was a challenge, being HRW. Uh, but it enabled me to work more on South Kivu issues, which I didn't know a ton about. Mm. So I got to work on some of the Banyu Malenge issues, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to work on Burundi, which was a which was a real, at that moment, which was a real pleasure. Mm. So, yeah. It's kind of a different operating model. It's a different day-to-day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From what I was doing in Goma. Yeah. In Goma, I, I was like a free... I literally had full... I'm not saying you're doing whatever the hell you wanted, but you were... Uh, no, pretty much I did. It was a light, a light organizational it structure. It was a though. super light organizational structure. There was three of us, and I had really a lot of latitude in decision-making. Yeah. Um, no, so I went to a much more structured... I mean, you know, I mean, day-to-day, I'm chat, I have to chat with supervisors almost on a daily basis. Mm. Um, much more monitored in the sense mm. of like, not that they're checking up on you, but, uh, the way we work is oftentimes things are unfolding as an ongoing conversation. Mm. So your supervisor is going to be much more in the know as to what you're up to, mm. um, how it's coming along, etc. Mm. Did you think of that at the time as sort of a, a trade off to do a different kind of work that you thought would be more useful? Was it more just that you thought it was interesting? It was both. I mean, frankly, I'm not going to lie. It was really interesting. Right. You know, I think honestly, perfectly valid yeah, reason. I mean, honestly, I think you meet anyone who says they're doing it 
for noble reasons, which, which I feel like I'm having an impact. So I do, you know, I yeah. do think they're, but I think they're being disingenuous if they're saying that, that being a, something being interesting is not a main driver. Yeah. I mean, frankly, like, mm. objectively, mm. the work I do is really interesting. Mm. I wouldn't, me personally, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was. Mm. The day I start thinking that the CAR is boring um, is a day that I'll probably start looking. Yeah. I mean, you can get cynical. I have cynical moments. You yeah. can get frustrated. Yeah. You can get you can get really down the dumps, you know, about what's happening. But boring, like that day, never. Um, and even when some of these themes seem to just be coming back on themselves, it's still objectively, it's still very interesting. Yeah. So I was I was interested in that. Um, I was also, you know, interested in trying to segue. It's all nice and good to be working on the local programs that that like flag raising and how people are getting bribes on it. And I think there is impact in that mm -hmm. in, in, you know, and frankly, I'm very proud of the work we did on that example for, you know, yeah. but, uh, I was also ready to, yeah, I mean, start looking at some of these issues around human rights abuses around, you know, in a Rwandan context or Burundian context around freedom of expression, um, around, you know, how governments are, are treating their people mm -hmm. um, from a bit of a higher level mm -hmm. uh, and and um, a bit more political. Mm -hmm. um, and and what I didn't know, I mean, as you know, when you get into groups like HRW or Amnesty, as a as a quote unquote researcher, uh, what you're not really aware of is how much advocacy you're going to be doing mm -hmm. at at sort of quote unquote higher levels. I mean, ambassadors, stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was uh, the political aspect was was yeah, it was very very um, interesting to sort of get involved in that level and to try to feel that you're having an impact at that higher level. Mm -hmm. um, and it's frustrating work in some ways. You don't feel like you are, but then years later, you can look back and you can point to some successes, um, which is always a, a good feeling. And I guess a couple of questions there, but in terms of the boxes that we put these things in, right? Mm -hmm. One of the first, the first job here was uh, conceptualized around justice in the sense mm -hmm. of a predominantly, I guess, judicial and uh, yeah. and legal approach to addressing problems in these contexts. Yeah. And yeah. then the second box is very different, right? This is more about advocacy and, yeah. and pressure and and overtly politics and obviously there's a legal framework underpinning that but the yeah, the mechanism I mean, HR, is completely different HRW is a political is perceived yes. and in many instances rightly so yes. as a political organization yeah yeah was that something that was you were conscious of at the time I was but I didn't realize how we are perceived I mean HRW is is neoliberal I mean mm. you know we think democracy is the best working model for government. Uh, we, you know, <laughs> I think in, that's a not completely untenable position. No, I know, but you know, we're not. Um, we we're lefty, but we're not like a, we're not radical lefty. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, we believe in international institutions. We believe strongly in the UN. Yes. You know, things like that. And yes. if you don't believe that. You're not going to last very long. Yeah. Uh, you're really not. And so, sort of from an academic perspective, if you're not a neoliberal, you're you're, you're not going to last at HRW. And those are mm. just those are just facts. Yeah. That's not an opinion. Yeah. Um, if you think the UN is a scam and a crock, you're you know, 
good luck. I mean, you're not going to last very long if you think the ICC is a waste of time and money. You know, you you can keep your mouth shut, but you're just not going to last long with your organization. You know, you have to be for sort of mm. those types of international structures. Mm. You have to be for yeah, multilateralism. I mean, it is quite different to the sort of community level. Yeah. How can we solve this problem around the flag raising? Exactly. Yeah. There's, a, there's a legal framework out there somewhere, but right now we're talking about sort of this unit of police, this administrator, yeah, yeah. this this town a 12-hour drive from... But we do get down to the micro levels, I mean, at HRW. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, the Rwanda work that we've done for years, a lot of it revolves around specific cases of mm. specific people mm. um, who have been, you know who are emblematic of, you know, greater miscarriages of justice. And mm -hmm. so in terms of just capacity, you can't work on every case, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if there's a journalist in Burundi, for example, who who really does, is you know, his or her case is demonstrative of the crackdown on freedom of expression, mm -hmm. you are given the leeway to go deep on that one case. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's one thing that's very uh, fulfilling mm -hmm. about, about it is mm -hmm. that, you can uh, you can go deep on specific instances mm. and not always have to have the twenty five to thirty thousand foot perspective. Yeah, you sort of alluded to the uh, the difficulty of this, right? If, you, if you're working at the system level, if you're working at the political level, yeah. yes, the the stakes are higher, the canvas is bigger, but it's very difficult to attribute any change to anything you've actually done. Yeah, it's a tough. lot of the time. Pinpointing impact can be difficult. Yeah. I know, obviously, that's a problem for organizational sort of <laughs> fundraising and, and evaluation and so forth. But in terms of your own motivation over the years, I mean, I was reading, a, when I was doing some work on CAR, I read something you'd written on CAR. It was from 2013. Yeah. Which, sitting here in early 2018 and talking about Essentially, the same set of issues, yeah. but in some respects, worse. Yeah, yeah, worse for people, worse for Central Africans. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, there's the fatalism that's set in at that level. How does one guard a sense of, of optimism yeah. or a sense of perspective, even in that setting? I mean, like I said, you have to be fundamentally interested in the world, like, <laughs> and, and, and it's cases like this that yeah. you know, honestly. But yeah. all jokes aside, like. Because there are, I mean, look at DRC as well. I yeah. mean, look at how that country seems to be sliding backwards on so many different fronts. Mm -hmm. um, CAR, I mean, objectively, I mean, there's as much displacement now as there was in 2014 at the height of the crisis. I yeah. mean, things are very bad in some ways. Yeah. Um, you do it a couple ways. Number one, um, you you recognize that you know you've chosen to work on this area not because it's easy but because it's tough, mm -hmm. um, and that there is frankly, and I still feel this, there is value mm -hmm. in in getting the word out there. And I say that in a very general sense. So whether that be through the media, whether it be through folks you know who are policymakers that read it. I mean, at the end of the day, something like Yemen or Syria, these things that seem intractable. Is it better that we simply don't know about it or should we continue to know about it while we're trying to slog through mm. and figure out how to stop killing each other, you mm. know? Um, and I, I, I'm on the, uh, the second, you know, I believe that I'm, I believe in the latter, that we mm. should know about these issues, even though, yeah, I mean, CAR, there is no solution on the horizon, mm. like as to how this country is going to become, and let's just, 
in terms of like being realistic, what do we want? Like a basic functioning state, you know, I mean, that's it mm. in which the majority of the territory is not controlled by armed groups. We're not talking about the other issues of quality of life, education levels, you know, development, roads, infrastructure, all that stuff. Forget about it. Let's, let's, let's be realistic. Mm. Um, so it does get tough. Um, you, I don't know, you, you, you try your best day in, day out. You try every once in a while after a big chunk of time to take a, a, a longer look and see where you've made progress. Mm. You take comfort in some of the aspects that you've made progress on. And mm. in car, there have been some, mm. there definitely have been some. And, um, you, you approach it in a, in a framework of, look, it's better that the world knows about these issues than to say it can ignore them, you know, mm. and, and to, or to not to say, it, but to be in a position to ignore them. Um, but it's tough and it's been, it's been particularly tough since Trump was elected. I'm not going to lie. The mm. framework of, you know, we don't have Samantha Powers, John Kerry. I mean, this sort of Western governments, mm. um, that were much more amenable to a group like human rights watch talking about the central African Republic, it's just changed. The dynamic has changed. And that's, you know, frankly, when we're talking about car, we're talking about the sort of Western capitals that have power. France, Great Britain, um, the U.S. was a huge player in car, and we ceased to be. We don't even have an ambassador. Mm. Um, and so the last, you know, the last 18 months has been a, yeah, it's been a shift. It's been more difficult mm. in terms of advocacy on these uh, on what is, you know, an ongoing, protracted and expensive crisis. The and it cuts both ways in a sense because I I think maybe we both worked on in and on DRC for um, a good length of time and as you said earlier during a period that was in retrospect was sort of a honeymoon period yeah. it was a, it was a yeah. period of relative stability Absolutely. where there was scope to do useful stuff right? yeah. at the community yeah. level at the national level. And now you look at it, and it is has, has manifestly gone backwards. It's, right? it's unbelievable. When it's even so when I left, it was considerably worse than when I got there, and now compared to that, it's considerably worse again. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's horribly demotivating. It's demotivating. It really is. Um, I have to tell you, um, what's happening in the Congo is is, is really demotivating mm. and difficult to watch, and it's really on multiple fronts. I mm. mean, it's sort of Okay, there's the political front and, and, and the catastrophe in Kinshasa with Kabila. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also just like, I mean, I speak to my Congolese friends now and they're so, they just want out. They mm -hmm. just want out. They want to leave the DRC. I mean, the, the, the quality of life for many of the people, but you know, Goma is still going strong. So it's not like, you know, we don't want to like paint this, use a wide yeah, brush. City, but cities are always kind of their own thing. Cities right? are their own thing. Yeah. And they are, and they have their own communities and they're able, they're very, I mean, Goma is an incredibly um, resilient community. I was there when M23 took it yeah. and it bounced back really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but boy, I mean, the people outside, they want out. I mean, yeah. they're just exhausted. A yeah. lot of them. I'm speaking in generalities, but a lot of them are just exhausted. So the DRC is quite a, yeah, it's a tough example on how to stay optimistic right now. Mm. Um, as we're entering, you know, as I said, as we're entering, I think, a new world in which human, I mean, for the next few years at least, human rights 
that's just a backseat issue when you're, you know, trying to advocate at a global level and you're trying to influence decision makers. And that's DRC, mm. which is historically of the last, in my opinion, the last few years, it continues to be a sort of priority country. Mm. CAR. I mean, but for the blimp in 2013, 2014, in which genocide was being tossed around, which I actually never agreed with ever, the mm. use of that word, really been a struggle to just focus decision makers' attention on it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, as, as things in car continue to be difficult, it is demotivating, but you're interested in the work. You think you're doing the right thing in the sense of, of you're getting the information out there mm. and point to some of the successes that you had. And then I don't know, man, I mean, you get into a position where you decide what kind of world you want to live in. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, and I know this sounds very moral and kumbaya, but like, do you want to be a person that tried to push things in the right direction? Or do you want to be a person that shrugged his shoulders and became a, you know, went full cynic mm. and, um, didn't care. And, mm. you know, I don't think I'll ever be there. Mm. You know, I'll always try to push it in the right direction. Mm. And, you know, I think that's the spirit of trying to do human rights work in some of these tough places, not only DRC, but like Burundi, I mean, Burundi is really bad in mm. the sense of it's become basically a closed country. Yeah. Uh, you know, I worked on it for years. I thought it was going in the right direction. DRC. Unbelievable how in, in the East in 2009, 2010, I mean, it was so stable compared to now. If you look back at that, you know, a large part of it is the work, doing the good work or work that's interesting, right? Mm. When you look back at that, what jumps out as examples of that where you can look back and think, okay, the situation went in clearly the wrong direction considered mm. in global terms, but I did this thing that I'm proud of and it helped some people and it was yeah. good. Like, what does that look like in your in your world? I mean, it depends. It depends. In CAR, you know, it can be um, you get uh, a rebel group. Part of your work, I know you don't want to take too much credit, but part of your work led to a rebel group maybe leaving an area or mm -hmm. stopping, just stopping to kill people. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also get much more granular. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be literally one case in which you've helped like one guy who was held in military detention in Kigali mm -hmm. get out of it, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and you know, the family telling you, wow, like it literally, if it wasn't for your intervention on this, he'd still be being tortured. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in, in Burundi, a very, very close friend of mine named Bob Rugarika, mm -hmm. who was a journalist was locked up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's actually very healthy to have these individual cases with a name and a face mm. that you can latch yourself onto, mm. um, and really sort of not give up. Mm. And, you know, Bob, Bob was locked up for months, uh, and he was released and huge. I'm not saying HRW should take all the credit, but we, in terms of international civil society, we were a major voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's something that you can really you know, even though at this point, this was 2015, Rooney was really going, it was before the coup, the May coup, but it was going in the wrong direction. He was released in February. It was tough, you know, but, but at least that was an example in which you could be like, yes, thank God, you know, like something good is happening. Mm. Uh, and it was because, you know, I, I was a voice in, in sort of a, a collective voice. Mm. Um, 
you know, uh, in, in CAR, I'm obsessed with a case of African Union uh, peacekeepers who committed murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is going back to 2014. This is uh, the Brazzaville, Republic of Congo? Yeah, yeah Brazzaville contingent. Um, they they committed, they killed 12 civilians. I mean, a couple of them were actually anti-Balaka, but at the time they were detained. Uh, but some of them were women and children. And, um, you know, this was a case... We exposed it in March 2014. Actually, it was, uh, the, the, the report came out in June, but we exposed it in March, April. Um, AU already knew it was wrapping up, mm-hmm. getting it wrapped into Minusca. Um, you know, going to switch from green to blue helmets, and it wasn't going to be an AU problem. So Addis was basically just played for time. Mm-hmm. Um, when the UN took over, you know, and fair enough, they're like, look, the contingent that committed this is gone, and this wasn't our troops. You can't yeah. give us any flack. We're, you know, we're minuscule. We're a new mission. Yeah. But it was just through sheer uh, perseverance. And, you know, I can criticize HRW a lot, but I will say this is one of the things which the organization and not just HRW, but groups like Amnesty and the like should get some credit is that they put people in place and they let them work on these either issues or countries for years at a time. Mm. And that's really important. It I is. Think. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the Boali case, um, it's finally, there's some real action. I mean, there's some real stuff that's happening and it's fascinating stuff. So Columbia University hired a bunch of Argentinian forensic anthropologists and they came and they re-excavated the grave and they, they've done the most, I haven't seen it, but I've, I've seen it held up. They won't let me look at it because it's evidence. But, I mean, they've done what I've been told is one of the most impressive sort of forensic reports ever done on CAR. And there's three guys in jail right now in Brazzaville, the commanders of this, this contingent. And, you know, they, the Brazzaville authorities, and based on primarily the noise that HRW made, mm-hmm. um, you know, filed a robatory request to have an investigation done in Central African Republic. So, yes... In the vast scheme of things, we are talking about 12 people killed in which thousands and thousands of people have been killed in CAR. Mm. Um, and yes, it's all nice and good. I can pat myself on the back and say, you know, I've made a difference. But honestly, in some, sometimes you, you do need those cases mm-hmm. um, just for your moral. I mean, not, not your moral, but just for your headspace, just to sort of yeah. know that you're not, you're not uh, just you have some tangible use. I have this dream, this reoccurring dream that I'm in a boat. Mm-hmm. This really started with Central African work that I'm in a boat. It's pitch black. And then I'm, I fire one flare into the sky. Uh, and I just see it and it, you know, mm-hmm. falls into the water or the ocean, wherever I am. And it goes black again. And I can't figure out the meaning. I've, I've been having it for years now. I think it's a metaphor for the fact that oftentimes I feel like that's how I feel. Fire the flare and nothing happens. Yeah, fire flare. I try to illuminate uh, something for yeah. a moment, and it literally lasts a moment, and mm-hmm. then it goes out. Um, and yeah, no, honestly, like I, I do think it's my own sort of way of dealing with some of the stuff I've seen and heard over the last few years. Is this reoccurring dream? I have it almost on a monthly basis. Hmm. Uh, oftentimes after I've been in CAR, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange thing. But, you know, you have to sort of find the small victories and take solace in it and um, use that to sort of re-energize you. Do you do that in any sort of explicit way? I mean, do you do that intentionally, as people would say in the, in, uh, the self-help literature? Do you sit down and think about, okay, it's been 
How many years have you been working on CR? Five years now? Five, yeah. Do you look back and do you sort of account? Do you do an accounting of things like that or? No. I think I'd be, I think I'd be more depressed if I did an accounting <laughs> because frankly, it's a tough place. I mean, things aren't going swimmingly in car five years in. Um, and also we have to be, you know, we gotta be realistic. Like yeah. HRW, good organization, you know, has a good rep in it. Well, it depends on what angle you're coming from, but internationally known. But on the other hand, you know, yeah. we didn't stop the fight. You know, we, you know, we're not, Manusco's not there because of HRW. You know, we also have to recognize our place. Sure. Um, and, you know, be a bit sort of realistic and humble about how much of a limited role we actually play. Mm-hmm. Important role? Absolutely. Limited? Yeah, it, it is. Um, so, you know, no, I don't, I've never done a sort of <laughs> monthly accounting because I think I'd be pretty <laughs> bummed if I did. Uh, it oftentimes feels like you're running up against a brick wall. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm sure it does. I just asked the question because I I feel like if you didn't do that in some way from time to time, you would you would go insane. Right? If, you look, yeah. if you look at the macro trends, they're just I mean, I have just been doing some work on CAR, so it's yeah. fresh in my mind. Look at the macro trends, they're just bad. Right? They are bad. They're unambiguously bad. They're unambiguously bad and the the sort of current political context does not help. Uh it's not pushing things in the right direction. No, that's true. Um no, look, it's true, but it falls back on it falls back on this broader issue, which is: Do you? I mean, if you fundamentally were in this business only to sort of try to have an outcome mm-hmm. twelve to eighteen to twenty four months later, mm-hmm. you're in the wrong. You're in, you're not going to last. You know, mm-hmm. you have to recognize that there's value in people. And, you know, if we want to talk about IHL, so people being raped or murdered mm-hmm. and not having them be completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. And in some instances, you know, you're never going to identify those people, but you are going to try to highlight in a certain area, a certain group committed these crimes. Are they going to get away with it? Yeah. Do the numbers. Most of these perpetrators are going to get away with it. Yes. You know, it's not rocket science. We're all for accountability. I'm for accountability, but... If you're a Seleka or anti-Balaka leader in the Central African Republic, chances are probably going to get away. With yeah, <laughs> ICC probably ain't going to get you because they're only going to go after a few people. Special Criminal Court is still a bit in theory, um, although it's getting there. Yeah, yeah you're, you're you're on solid ground. You're probably going to get whacked by you know in battle by one of your own men before you're actually <laughs> held accountable. Um, so you know, you know, we do this for accountability reasons. Yeah. You know, we try to do this to create the paper trail, so yeah. you know, at, at a court or a hybrid tribunal or somebody can follow it down. And you, you know, you have to be realistic. This many years in to know, there's a really good chance that the vast majority of of IHL abuses, of, of human rights abuses, of war crimes, yeah, there's not going to be much outcome. But you have to see value in having, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think if I was shot in some fucking village mm. in CAR. I want someone documenting it. You know, mm-hmm. I want someone to sort of give a voice. Everyone put. Everyone thought the UN mission would be a, a, a magic bullet. We put way and unrealistically. I mean, totally. It's not because of like. I mean, we can criticize the mission, but it's not because the mission came in and was a spectacular failure. There was just such a hope 
that the shift from Miska to Minuska in September of 2014. Um, and at that point, I mean, the CAR, I think this is what's to struggle is that, yeah, it's complex, but like, if you want to compare it to the most comparable conflicts, okay, you go to the Congo, right? Mm. We're talking about CAR, 4.6 million people, mm-hmm. tiny population mm-hmm. when you compare it to the DRC. Uh, we're talking about, um, yes, there is definitely a sectarian nature to the fighting and that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be denied, right? Mm-hmm. But, and I know this, I'm speaking in generalities here, but it's, the conflict is less complex than some of these issues in the DRC. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think everyone thought it was sort of Congo easy, you know, uh, that, that it's just a smaller country, mm-hmm. smaller population. Turned out it's Congo more difficult. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so everyone thought that and I bought into it and I was kind of using this as my pitch as we were trying to, you know, it's like, yeah. look, it's Congo light. It's Congo easy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we thought, we thought, you know, and, and I'm guilty of this. I was a person who was like, this is going to be a quick mission, you know, Trust mm-hmm. me, I, I've seen Minusco. This is going to be a quick mission. This is going to be, yeah. this is going to be five years from now. You'll literally be in this phase where you're sort of wrapping it up over the next five yeah. years. Uh, and then here I am in November last year, like pushing hard publicly for more troops to oh, be sent. I remember, yes. The troop ceiling to be raised. So I, I get the, I, you know, so, so that was a real, uh, looking back, it's interesting that People, okay, like me, but also others who should have known better, mm. uh, we, we kind of got lulled into thinking that Min- Minuska was going to be yeah, this cure-all where mm. it, it hasn't been. Thinking about your role, you know, you're doing advocacy, you're doing some activism of a sort, you're firing that flag up. Were your expectations about what that role could contribute or bring about the right ones. I mean, you addressed, in this case, it was addressed to sort of the Security Council, mm-hmm. it was addressed to some sort of bureaucratic part of the UN, it was addressed to interested governments, and like, yeah. you know, you get the the brass ring, you get the big prize you were going for, yeah. deployment of this yeah. heavy mission, yeah. 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 and then nothing changes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, nothing ch- I mean, it had a serious impact initially. Had a, had a really good impact initially, and then honestly, 2015 was a good year in CAR, huh? Yeah. I mean, yeah, things were going in the right direction in CAR. Uh, 2016 as well. I mean, we had the new president. Mm-hmm. It's really been 20 and the 2016 mm-hmm. into 2017 that we're having this protracted. It's really looking like we just have a sort of real issue of just conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so the question is, what are my expectations or? Well, the, 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 I guess there are limits to your, there is an inherent limit to your role, right? Yeah. If you're, yeah. If you're advocating for something to happen, you, you need an audience and that audience has to have the tools yeah. to do something. Yeah. If those ingredients aren't in place, yeah. nothing will happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and even in the case where you get the big change you're looking for, yeah. uh, didn't necessarily have the results that didn't get the results we wanted. You hoped it would. Yeah. Did that, does that change? Did that change your? perspective yeah it does it does and you know the recent uh, the quick reaction force that we've been pushing for you know i mean uh i'm having conversations this week people are like okay so now this is the this is the this is what we need look you have to be is the quick reaction force is 750 brazilians and and and, uh, 150 rwandans which is what i think the numbers are now i is that going to solve issues in car as it results to violence and stability? I mean, no. Mm. Um, however, 
being on the ground, I did see what 100 Portuguese can do, mm-hmm. um, and they can have a positive effect on mm-hmm. hotspots. That is that is an absolute fact. I've seen it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, I can't lie and say uh, another thousand troops, it's 900 or a thousand troops, is, is going to be is going to yeah. put things on a positive footing. Um, I mean, look at the rapid reaction force in Congo with M23. Everyone's like, oh, this is the model. I mean, and look where things are now. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know. However, when you see warlords uh, killing people in, in front of Minusca bases, you yeah. know, uh, when you start to question the Chapter 7 mandate, you do start to question peacekeeping missions in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, you know, it's really in vogue right now to sort of really go after these missions and say that they're ineffective. But being on the ground, I would also say, um, and this is purely in terms of just saving lives, this is not really about quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, but they do create um, safe havens. And, mm-hmm. and in some instances in CAR, where the violence is spreading, especially in areas where the, 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 the CLRA mission is pulled out and the guns and you know, the American support are gone, just having a base in which a displacement camp can be set up around. I know that's a low bar, mm-hmm. uh, but there is value in that, and that people are not simply just being gunned down. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the sort of standards that you need to work on. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, I, I, I think we all were overly optimistic about Minusca. The blinders have been pulled off in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, lessons have been learned. Some of this has to do with the troop contributing countries simply not stepping up, having no interest in forcing the mandate. Mm-hmm. Some of it has to do with just systemic issues about the politics of, of Bongi, about people not really understanding the role political players can play. Mm-hmm. Some of it just has to do with systemic issues around car and mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, just infrastructure issues, accessibility issues, yeah. and just conflict. geography. Yeah, geography. Um, and a thousand troops. You know, if they enforce the mandate, can make a difference. Mm-hmm. That can be. They can't be everywhere at once. Mm-hmm. But what's the other option? Mm-hmm. Give up? Because I tell you, I mean, if if Minusca pulls out of car, a lot of people will die. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that I do believe. And mm-hmm. you know, I would be one of the people making the most noise if Trump or whoever was like, let's just get rid of this mission. Let's just end it. Let's just take a year and wrap it down and mm-hmm. close the bases and get them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think lessons can be learned. You know, you look at Burundi. I think that mission pulled out too early. Mm-hmm. Politically, the country wasn't there yet. And now look where we are. I mean, you have political violence unfolding now, not in huge numbers. Let's not, you know, exaggerate. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you're talking about thousands of people killed over the last couple of years. Political violence at, at what should be unacceptable levels in a country that is regarded as a real win for peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people who are smarter than me need to look at Burundi, look at how it worked, and realize politics matter. And you need to have a political, you know, a sort of political maturity. Uh, I don't know what the word would be, but you need to be there politically before you withdraw. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, boy, it really could be an example of, like, if things go bad, in the mm-hmm. 2020s in Burundi. I don't think we're in a crisis. I think some smarter people at higher levels should really sit down and crunch the numbers and say, why the hell are we contemplating like re-engaging on a massive international scale in this country mm-hmm. when you know 10 years ago we, we withdrew at that same level? Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I hope there's people having those conversations. The 
part that I wanted to go back to was you I sort of dove down the rabbit hole of, of motivation and, and outcomes in this sort of environment. But you started by saying that you can't obsess about that. Yeah. Or you'll go insane. Yeah. yeah. And the a very large part of it, if not the most important part, is is the that the work is is interesting. Yeah. Can you elaborate yeah. in in what way or how does that play out? I mean, how does it play out in practical sense? Yeah, like what's what's interesting? Which which bits of it do you find compelling and sure? You know, even, even enjoyable is maybe not the right word given the subject matter. Yeah. But let's say compelling. Not gonna lie, some of it's enjoyable. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that someone like myself, uh, who you know, I never had any ambitions to sort of be a political player or a player in that regard, mm-hmm. um, can. By virtue of the fact that I do know a lot of people after five years in car, mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that I can still, uh, because of the job, because we're not limited by the, frankly, the restrictiveness of, of like the UN and the security measures, mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of the fact that we can get out and, and continue and maintain these relationships, um, I, I would be bold enough to say on some occasions we have made a positive effect in Convincing, uh, militia leaders, um, Seleka, anti-Balaka leaders to change their ways in some regards, mm. um, to think about chain of command issues. You know, I've had conversations with Seleka leaders around chain of command and they said, mm. well, I didn't know my guys were doing that. And you said, it doesn't matter. You should know. And having, and, and think about that, um, you know, cause a lot of these guys are tough guys from the bush who, mm. you know, they're not, they're not going over IHL law with the uh, mm-hmm. ICRC in the early trainings. Mm-hmm. Um, that some of that is fundamentally fascinating. It's mm-hmm. really, really interesting and mm-hmm. and compelling to to do that kind of work day in day out. And I do think that's one of the values of a group like of a group like HRW um, or you know some of these other sort of NGOs that um, have the resources to be able to continually commit to a country like CAR. I've been to some of these regions so many times and I know these people so well. So you, you get the added benefit of not feeling like you're flying in for the two week mission mm-hmm. and you're leaving, you know, you're always going to be back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that does make you instinctively, even on these bad issues, want to dig deeper mm-hmm. and want to go further. Um, and some of the conversations are super interesting. I mean, I always defer to survivors and victims, you know, my, mm-hmm. my, my empathy comes from them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when you chat with a fighter and you try to understand where he, most instances he, mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> is coming from, it can be really, um, illuminating to understand sort of why we're here in the first place. I remember I was having a conversation with a Seleka fighter in Bangui in 2013 mm-hmm. and he had never seen a paved road. And I, at this point, I'd never been to Barao, where the Seleka came from in the Northeast. And I have since, but, you know, he just said, look, for us, Bongi was, was, I mean, and this year I am, this American, like Bongi, you know, thinking Bongi was kind of a bit of a dump when you compare it to Kisangani or Kinshasa. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it's lacking in some of the basic amenities. Um, you know, and for him, Bongi was like Valhalla. It was like this dream city. Mm. And having him tell me about the moment, um, where it must have been up around Sibut, where the road went from dirt to paved, mm. you know, and, and, you know, it was really, I was like quite, quite an eye opening experience for me to kind of mm. 
put myself in his perspective. I mean, the Northeast is an incredibly maligned and marginalized and forgotten about part of the country. And yeah, you know, you, you talk about the reasons of the Seleka, but for me, that drove it home. Yeah. And he's a Central African. He wasn't Chadian. Kid, super pissed mm-hmm. about the circumstances in which he'd been born into. Mm-hmm. Felt like he had nothing to do with the central government in his country. Mm-hmm. Was given an opportunity to do something about it. Don't approve at all of what he did, you know, what he may or may not have done, but, you know, he certainly participated in some war crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it's super interesting to, to be in situations to, to enable you to start thinking like that. I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Um, no, I, 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 I don't think it is a tangent. I completely agree yeah, with you. And in, yeah. in, in my experience, you don't get that anywhere else. Like yeah. you will never get that perspective written down or broadcast. I mean, a couple of academics sort of maybe yeah. get a little bit of it. Some yeah, of the better researchers. Some of they go deep. Yeah. And, and when I do, I like, I, I devour it. Sometimes they put the time in. Oftentimes they don't though, which is yeah. pretty amazing. I mean, I know a lot of academics who, and you know, I get it. You got to teach or you got to write or whatever, but sometimes they go to these regions that they quote unquote focus on mm-hmm. for two weeks a year. And one thing you'll never hear me say is I'm an expert on Central Africa because I'm not. I don't speak the local languages. Mm-hmm. I'm not from there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an outside observer, and I, I try not to lose track of that. And anytime anyone self presents as an expert, as an expert yeah. I'm very wary. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm super wary of of where he or she is coming from and what they've done. And yeah. you know, you can write a book about it. it's not rocket science to write a book about sort of political violence in the Central African Republic, you know, it's mm. not. Mm. Uh, or Congo, which is those academics just kind of, you, Chari- trip, you, Chari- trip, you know, trip over them, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, I mean, if you find it interesting, which we all do, yeah. it's not that hard. Um, self, you know, self-proclaimed experts, no, I, I'm, mm. I'm very wary of. I, uh, I share your, <laughs> I certainly share your skepticism. My, my reservations. Your yeah. reservations yeah, there. Yeah. But this this guy, do you remember his name? Uh, the soldier. Yeah. You no, know, it was at the Hotel Ledger, which you know well. Oh, the Ledger. Uh, when Chichodia had taken over. And uh, the only reason he and I, I, I don't remember his name. Although I have it in my notes because I actually, uh, his testimony didn't actually figure into any HRW reports. But his testimony actually informed some of our analysis about how the Salika came down. So I, I certainly will have his name. I can find it. Um, but he uh, he spoke French. Yeah. So that was huge that's, for me. That's why they were talking to Exactly. <laughs> so it was a one-on-one that I was a- able to have. Yes. And this is a tangent, but the, the ledger, by the way, is probably my least favorite place. Five-star. Yeah. That I have ever... <laughs> It's well, kind of, it's kind of depressing. Not, I, I, not even because it's yeah. depressing, but you just imagine like you just imagine all of the shady, self-serving dealings that have happened in yeah, that place yeah, over the years, yeah. and you feel dirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel dirty. You also literally feel dirty because it's kind <laughs> of a dump, and yet and it's, it's this ungodly expensive. It's dump. so expensive. It's you know, it, it's it's quite pretentious. How I don't know. I, I, I things are kind of falling apart. The windows are dirty. You know, like. Um, Chichoni has set himself up there though for mm. a few months. Yeah. yeah, and it was really, it was surreal. I mean, it was so surreal sure. because the entire hotel was run by the Seleka. 
Um, and they, yet they kind of managed to keep it going. And a lot of the UN people still stayed there. It was so weird. It was such a weird context. I mean, the UN folks, it was Banuka at the time, but someone like the UNDP folks were like staying at the ledger while Chichodia was at the ledger while Chichodia's like technicals with the big machine guns on them were like prowling around the parking lot. It was mental. I mean, it was just kind of like, it was super, yeah, it was super a, strange. That's a whole other kind of worms thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like anyone tells those stories or that it's your job to not obviously defend or, or promote that perspective, but to, you know, integrate that into the wider narrative, right? Yeah, I wish it was. It's not. Um, yeah. It's not. I mean, we're pretty, no, we're not, we're not there to sort of, yeah. we're not there to give context to war crimes. But uh, I do in those instances, so for him I didn't, but I, I ended up meeting some Seleka before they fled in 2014 that were also equally, had compelling stories, and so to the best of my abilities, I do try, because the only people that can tell those stories, in my opinion, are journalists. Mm. Academics are too academic about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these are, these are at the end of the day, these are human stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you you do want them told. So, I, I you know, I have told journalists, and in some instances, when the timing's right and the actual person's on the ground and they can meet up, they do meet up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been a few instances in which I've been able to pass that info along. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only time we're allowed to tell those types of, give give that type of voice is when it comes from the perspective of a survivor or a victim, mm-hmm. which is equally important. Sure. Um, but, you know, I do think, yeah, if you're working on armed groups and these issues, you need to give some type of agency to the guys who are pulling the trigger because they're not doing it for shits and giggles. I mean, they're not doing it because they like killing people. Mm. Uh, oh, some of them do, but they're psychopaths. Mm. But, you know, uh, most of them have a reason for doing it. Mm. You don't agree with it. And you do need to know it, although HRW doesn't as much. Um, but no, I think it's important. And I think um, in my experience in both Congo, although Congo there's just more written generally, yeah. but in CAR... Um, it, it really does have to be the journalist that is able to maybe tell those types of stories from a layman's, you know, in a layman's language yeah. and not to get too caught up in sort of the technicalities of it. But in terms of your method, yeah, it sounds like you do a lot of that. I mean, every yeah. time I've bumped into you, which is not that often, but the yeah. times I have bumped into you, it does seem like you've been having a lot of conversations so, yeah. with a wide range of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not just establish sort of a pattern of facts around a particular incident. No, no, no. And I think that's the value of us over a group like ICG who do more of the analytical stuff. Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to do analysis. Yeah. Um, we can have some analysis, you know, inform our writing post, you know, research in, in terms of a product, but we're not supposed to do much. And mm. if, if ever we're caught doing it, we should be called out on it. Mm. Our value is um, trying to ascertain how events unfolded and what actually happened through testimony, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't do, we're not, I mean, we are in some instances on the Habre case in Chad, you know, we, we sometimes fish for documents and, you know, we do try to get the documentation in terms of like a signature on a piece of paper. But in most cases, we're talking to, to, to witnesses and it involves dozens and dozens and dozens of them for a specific event mm-hmm. to, to have the sufficient, sufficient comfort level, mm-hmm. uh, in which to say with some degree of authority and confidence 
that X happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes from, it comes from testimony, witness testimony, period. Mm-hmm. So it means you have a lot of conversations. What's interesting or what is actually problematic, really, not just interesting, is that when you get down to that level of detail, you don't see many other people, and often I don't think you see anyone else doing that, mm-hmm. that level of granularity. Yeah, yeah. You don't see uh, all of the political analysts, and I've been in that category myself, we don't get down to that level. We don't get to talk to people who are sort of direct participants yeah. or witnesses to these yeah. sorts of events. And it's it's sort of one of these bizarre, in a way it's one of these bizarre ironies of the uh, aid business or broadly conceived or whatever you want to call it. The way we work in these contexts is that there's sort of resources to get at it from uh, a human rights and accountability perspective, but we don't take data gathering quite as seriously, I yeah. think, at that level to yeah. inform our political approach to yeah. inform engagement on other tracks. Yeah. And what's frustrating is that uh, because of time, because of security, they just don't take the time to speak with enough folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it dry, sometimes it drives me up a wall. Don't get me wrong, especially within the Human Rights Division, there are some very good people who, mm-hmm. who are fighting back against that. Um, but generally... They, they gloss it. They do interviews really quickly. Mm-hmm. They'll interview literally a couple people and they'll have done with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll spend, and I'm not being facetious here. They'll spend two hours on an event, which we will spend four days on, mm-hmm. um, and put out two or three paragraphs. We draw the same conclusion. You know, most instances, the divergences are really small and, mm-hmm. and like we're really getting into the weeds about like, a specific number of people dead or the perpetrator to one aspect of one, you know, like we're really getting into the weeds. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's frustrating because, you know, uh, we do, we do want to go. Yeah. I mean, if we commit to an incident or a group, we're going to go granular as granular as possible. It could be a waste of time. Well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's not what I was wondering. It could be, it could be. Well, I was, I was more wondering, you know, cause you're, the way you describe it, right, is incident-driven. Yeah. Um, is, yeah. is something very, in very many instances, it's very reactive. Yeah, yeah. So, if you want to understand uh, sort of underlying psychologies or, or yeah. cultural trends or yeah. however you want to put it, like the stuff that lies behind violence, yeah. you would think that sort of almost ethnographic type approach yeah. would be and even more would be even would be yeah. even more important, yeah. right? Because this is an predominantly oral. Yeah. Culture, culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. but I, I don't see it happening a lot. I mean, you must. I'm sure you have people. I mean, I myself have done this. Now that I think about it, you must have people sitting in capital cities asking you for your take on events on the ground because yeah. Yeah. you're there more often yeah. than they are, and you have yeah. some direct yeah contact. Access. Yeah, absolutely. This is why uh, you know researchers end up doing a lot of advocacy because. In many instances, especially in New York or Paris, they want to talk to the guy who's on the ground. I think they just want to reach out and touch somebody. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird... Because I can pass the high-level stuff to, to you. Yeah. You can get the point across. Yeah. But they want to... Yeah, they do want to reach out and touch. Um, it's because the embassies and the the advocacy targets, they just can't get out to those places. Yeah. Uh, or if they do, they go up for a few, literally a few hours. Mm. Um, or, you know, you've been to Powa. I mean, there's very few people that, that go to Powa for a number of days, period. I mean, that's just a fact. 
Um, and so, you know, there's value in if you're trying to make a decision around a certain area. I think there's value in, in touching someone who's been there. Mm. I get that. Mm. Um, you know, I just wish the UN would, would do more to, to be those people. And don't get me wrong, they have their bases, you know, they have human rights officers in their bases. So I'm speaking yeah. in a general context, but, you know, the only, the only organization with the capacity to do real human rights reporting in CAR, in Congo, it's the UN. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating sometimes when they, they come up short. Mm. Switching tack slightly. You are moving to the, back to the States, you said. Yes. Yeah. This is still with HRW. HRW. Yeah. But yeah. in a, actually, I don't know where the headquarters is, but this is a more of a no, coordinating type role. No, or? no, no. I, I, uh, so I, I, uh, I'm a senior researcher, which ah. is a strange post. I mean, basically, it's, <laughs> it's for people who've been there for too long to stay a researcher who, who don't want to be a deputy director. Right. Um, I don't know if I would stay at HRW in a management coordination role. Maybe I will in a few years. But for right now, I mean, the value for someone like me, I still think, is trying to be on the ground. Mm -hmm. We're moving back to the States for purely personal reasons. Mm -hmm. But I'm an hour and a half away from Montreal. And uh, from Montreal, there's a daily to Casablanca. Mm -hmm. From Casablanca, straight to Bongi, straight to Nairobi, straight to Kinshasa. So um, it's more exhausting than you make it. Sound. No, I know, I know. It's it's tiring. It's tiring, but you know, it's the way it is. So no, we're leaving after 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 ten ten years. Yeah, we'll be leaving East Africa, mm. um, which is bittersweet. But we're all just getting older. That's the basic facts. <coughs> and uh, my my parents and my wife's parents um, want us to spend more time. They want some. Mm. Grandkid time. So sometimes mm. you have to make these decisions and that's just the way it goes. That will inevitably decrease your... It'll decrease my time. Stuff. I mean, living two hours direct flight, yeah. two hours, 20 minutes direct flight from Bangui uh, has been amazing. I mean, there's four flights a day, a, a week from Nairobi. And so that is going to decrease my access. And who knows? I mean, maybe uh, this won't work out and maybe we'll... Mm will take a decision that um, that uh, we do need someone who spends more time there. Frankly, Bongi and the CAR is kind of like a single person's dream. I mean, if you were unattached, you could be living in Bongi. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I didn't put that right. I'm not sure it's you not understand like the, the psychology no, no, of no, no, people no, no, very the, well. the, tinder, the Tinder scene <laughs> isn't very big, but uh, what I mean is like for a researcher at HRW. <laughs> Uh, if you are a researcher, that's a it is slightly it more is, specific. Yeah, it is a dream place to be because it's a small city. You can get really connected really quickly with political yeah, you know, actors. Um, you know, you can call ministers and have beers with them mm. quite quite easily. Actually, much easier than it is in, in like at the DRC. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you you it's a small pool, so you become sort of a big fish mm -hmm. quite quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and maybe we'll go in that direction. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like car has become kind of a passion country for me, so I think HRW would be loath to take it away. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I should, you know, I, I'm sort of entering the phase where I'm thinking post 
post-researcher, uh, which won't happen for a number of years. Uh, I mm. hope, touch wood. But yeah, I, I need to start thinking about maybe a life after that. And, and maybe it would be good to pass the reins on to someone younger, uh, or not necessarily younger, but someone who, who's quite keen on actually living in the country. Mm-hmm. Because, boy, I think we could have a lot more... Uh, well, frankly, impact mm-hmm. uh, if we had a permanent presence there. So, mm-hmm. so maybe, yeah, maybe we'll have to go in that direction, and maybe this this move will precipitate that. Mm. A lot of people struggle with that. It's being based in the place, transition from. I mean, I guess you're already in Nairobi, so you're not sort of living that full time. But not living it full time anymore. It ironically. Because I lived in Burundi and Rwanda, ironically, writing and producing material is easy when you can remove yourself from it. Mm-hmm. Because I find when I'm there, you get so into some of these granular issues that we're talking about that you tend to lose fact of the, you tend to, you know, at the end of the day, is it really important that you spoke with 30 people from this one town or will 20 cut it? You know, we're, we're talking about something that is never going to, go that far. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, you'll publish on it and it might make two paragraphs, mm-hmm. you know? So, so it's quite nice to have a deadline in the sense that I have a flight to catch next week. So I do have to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you land in like Nairobi or, you know, come next year, it'll be Vermont. Uh, you know, you, you can actually sit down and actually start to write something, yeah. uh, which, so actually my output increased when I moved to Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, getting myself a bit removed from those areas. Mm. Um, so I think that the big question is just going to be how often do I get back? I mean, as it stands right now, although I've taken a couple months off to focus on some of these Great Lakes issues while, while we're in a recruitment phase. phase. Um, I, mean, I haven't been to car since January, but as it is right now... We're sitting here in March. <laughs> Early March, by yeah, the way. But, but, but as it is so now, long. I mean, I, I do try to go every month. Right. Uh, and that will certainly become less tenable yes. from Vermont. Yeah, for sure. Is that still, and I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but in your mind, is that still enough to do the work in the right way? Um, the work will have to change slightly. I yeah. mean, no, not to the level that I would wish it. No, yeah. it's, it's not ideal. I mean, this is, we're doing this for personal reasons, not professional reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think when you do that, then there's a compromise. Of course. Um, and yeah, I, the work will be affected. Now, is that just me being hard on myself? Probably, because as I said, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you do a week of work on some issue and it literally makes 300 words. Yeah. You start to really wonder if you're not being a little too obsessive, you know, mm. um, about speaking with every person or getting every name of every victim exactly the way it's supposed to be. And you never even publish the damn things. Mm. You know, you don't publish the names of most of those people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, yeah, I think it'll be affected whether the sort of quote unquote car watchers will notice that is another story. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the sector sort of chews up enough people that, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Absolutely encourage you to uh, I mean, it just, do the know, sensible thing. And, you know, look at a country like South Sudan with Human Rights Watch. I mean, we have a really high attrition rate. We have a hard time keeping people on it. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that is due to the fact that, that, that they go too much, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I like, to, you know, I like to go to car often, but maybe it'll make my work better to be a 
bit more removed, mm. um, to look at things at a bit more of a higher level. Mm. Um, who knows? You know, it might, it might, it might make the, make the research won't be better, period. Sure. I think that's a fact. But maybe the advocacy will be better. I'll be a lot closer to New York. Um, and as it stands right now, the only game in town is, is the UN Security Council when it comes to CAR I mean, mm. and the French. Um, yeah. but, but that's it. And so being close to New York, maybe that'll have, you know, an added, added benefit. So, you know, you need to look at it a bit holistically. Last point I wanted to touch on then you, you we had a brief discussion just before we started on various occupational niches that mm. exist, I guess, and, and, some people jump between them. The vast majority of people don't. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about uh, humanitarian jobs in particular. And it makes me wonder, I mean, why is this your part of the task, so to speak? I mean, you're, you're looking at a context. If we stick with CAR or Congo or, or Burundi mm-hmm. in, its, in its worst days, I mean, these are situations that are messed up yeah. from any perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And you've landed doing this particular angle on things yeah is that you find it interesting uh is it that you're uniquely fitted for that is it you think that's the most important thing i'm sure you won't say that yeah i mean i I don't think anyone's uniquely fitted for anything you 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 get molded into something that can get the job done Mm -hmm. whether you're doing the job effectively or not you know that's a different story but let's let's assume that you are yeah i mean i am i am but you know you you Life is just funny, you know, and, and I left New York, uh, with a desire to go to central Africa, but honestly, if something had come up somewhere else, I would have taken it. Mm -hmm. And uh, who knows, maybe I'd be in, I don't know. I knew life's just a funny thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, sometimes something comes, a path comes along the way and you go on it. And the journey continues in that direction. I mean, I, I, I never wanted to be a humanitarian in the literal sense. I never wanted to be uh, a development person. Mm-hmm. I knew that, you mm-hmm. know, and I would have a hard time morphing into uh, a development person. A lot of respect for people who work in development. Mm-hmm. It's just not my thing. What keeps me ticking, what keeps me awake are, are the, the sort of broader political issues, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Justice, you know, I was interested in justice and I mm-hmm. wanted to go work on justice issues in Central Africa. Um, you know, now that morphed into sort of proper hard nosed accountability, which, which HRW pushes hard, you know, yeah. um, but also issues around civilian protection, what, what the mission's doing right, what it could be doing better and what frankly it's straight up failing in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was broad level what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then it, life's is just a strange journey, man. I mean, you, you just, if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be, uh, one of the few native English speakers really following Central African Republic, I would have been, I would have had a hard time finding it on a map. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's a clue in the name. You know, I mean, I yeah, there's, there's a clue in the name, as I often say, it's a country, not a region, but, you know, I mean, honestly, I would have been probably surprised, but, you know, looking back on the way things have unfolded, it's a pretty organic and natural progression as to how I got here. Mm. It's not rocket science. And so, um, I still will never consider myself, I, I, I very well might dedicate my career to, to this region. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if I'll want to be a field researcher forever. 
But there's a very good chance I'll simply, and it doesn't mean with HRW, but I'll stay on Central Africa. Mm. Uh, I'll never consider myself, quote unquote, an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, you get stuck on these areas. You get stuck on these issues. Uh, you feel like you're making a difference. It's despite some of the horrible things, you can sleep well at night. It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I know folks who have jobs that are unfulfilling. I went to high school and college with some of those people. And as bad as some of the stuff is, and you know, the jobs that we do or humanitarians do, at the end of the day, it's fulfilling. You know, you feel good about what you've done. Mm-hmm. And that there's a real value in that. listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.